Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. And we're continuing our family Bible studies in the Gospel of St. Luke. And today we're going to be talking about the door to the kingdom. And we're going to be looking at the first beatitude in what is called the Sermon on the Plain. You're saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought it was called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, these are very, very similar sermons in Matthew. We read that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, but when you get to Luke, after the calling of the disciples, it says Jesus came with his disciples and stood on a level place with a great crowd. And this has been called the Sermon on the Plain. Very similar. And today we're just going to be looking at the first beatitude in this Sermon on the Plain, and it begins in verse 20, and it says this, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. There's something very radical here that maybe it's very common to our ears, but remember, this is primarily a Jewish audience. And the idea of using the present tense with a Jewish audience talking about the kingdom of God was a shocker. And here's why. In the Jewish expectation, the messianic kingdom was the age to come. It was a twofold plan. You had the present age, and then the Messiah would come and would inaugurate the future eternal age, the age to come. But Jesus did something radical. Like the Jewish expectation, you have the present age, and like the Jewish expectation, you have the age to come, but you have something else, that with Jesus coming, he brought with him the future, so to speak, not in its fullness. The fullness of the kingdom, we await until the second coming of Jesus, the age to come, but already we have kingdom blessings. And so he says, blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I'll tell you my conclusion before we even start this study in the Gospel of Luke. It is going to be very difficult for your children and yourself, but particularly your children, growing up in the 21st century to resist the strong gravitational pull of an anti-Christian cultural collapse that's going on all around us. They're going to need strong Christianity. And it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of this and that, I'll just say. A lot of people are trying to sell stuff that will keep your kids that way, and some of it's good and some of it's sales pitches. What Jesus brings is the future blessing of the kingdom. And that's one thing that doesn't cost anything, that's a present reality. The future reality of the kingdom, in part, is brought to us. So Jesus says, blessed are you, you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, there's a difference right here between the Sermon on the Mount, that begins in Matthew 5, and the Sermon on the Plain, which begins in Luke 6. In 
Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that would be the internal dynamic makeup of spiritual poverty or humility. In Luke, he simply says, blessed are you poor. Now, there's some kind of um, of difference of opinion among scholars. Does this refer to the literal poor in Luke, or does it apply to people with spiritual poverty or humility? And I think the most accurate answer to that question is simply to say, yes, both. And if it's both, that there's a blessing of the future kingdom, both to the literal poor and those with spiritual poverty or humility, then we might say that this is perhaps the most un-American verse in the entire New Testament. Because let's be honest, don't we glorify the rich in the United States, in social media, in uh, broadcasts? Uh, I confess, I read the Forbes magazine billionaires list. Can't believe that that many people have that much money. I mean, it's kind of like the American way of life. And yet, this isn't necessarily the best environment for developing the internal strength of the present kingdom to resist the onslaughts which want to drag us away from Christ. Did you know that the bulk of the early church, not all of it, because you had wealthy people, you had government leaders, you had the prosperous, wealthy folks that were in the Catholic Church, but the bulk of the church wasn't the high and mighty. In fact, St. Paul says in the first chapter of Corinthians, he says, for consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, what was St. Paul saying right there? He says what wasn't exclusively poor, wasn't exclusively the uneducated. He says not many. In other words, there were a few, but the bulk were those who really didn't have a whole lot going for them, so to speak, and God bestows his riches upon them. And this seems to be the case because very often if you're full of something else, it's hard for God to fill your life. It's kind of a, it's almost like um, you have a glass of water and then you try to pour yourself a Coke. Well, it's not going to look too good when you get done because you've, you're, you're trying to mix something up. It'll spill over. It'll just make a big mess. And, and really, it'd probably been nice either to have a glass of water or a Coke, but you're trying to mix the two. Now, what happens when people come to this country, like many have in the past, to your great-great-grandparents came here without two nickels in their pocket, and they have Christian virtue, hard work, and thrift, and maybe a little Dave Ramsey, no debt, because our grandparents kind of lived that way. What does that lead to? Well, I'll tell you what it leads to, two things. First, wealth accumulation, and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, as long as you don't love money, it's okay if you're engaging in virtue, hard work, thrift, and perhaps no debt. 
But what happens to the second and third generation? They frequently become spoiled spiritually and in other ways. Do you want to hear the history of America? And now this will probably tick some people off, but I'm going to give you the history of America. And it comes from the Old Testament. Well, you might say, wait, the Old Testament, uh, book of Deuteronomy, that was written, you know, 3,500 years ago and 3,300 years before the founding of America. This is our history. Listen, Deuteronomy 8. Take heed, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your gold and silver is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, this is the history of America, then your heart be lifted up, And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you. Do you get this? God's blessing on God's people brings prosperity, but so often prosperity brings with it a self-sufficient culture and even an egotistical culture so that when you have wealth, you lack poverty of spirit because my wealth, my hand, it's my genius, it's my, my, my this or that that have gotten me here. And that self-centeredness blasts the presence of God from your life, from your culture, from your nation. You know, have you ever asked yourself, What was it about Sodom that led to its downfall? I mean, why not some other place? Uh, What was so corrupting of Sodom? And a lot of people actually don't recognize what it was. But in Genesis 13, there is a dispute between Abraham and his flocks and the need to pasture them and water them, and Lot, his nephew's flocks and herds. And So Abraham, uh, the senior of the two, very graciously said to Lot, you choose where you want to go, you go, and I'll go the opposite direction. So it says in Genesis 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The place is kind of like a desert now. It's near the uh, Dead Sea. But at that time, it resembled the Garden of Eden. And at that time, agriculture was the economy. And so if you had a green, lush Garden of Eden type of place, I mean, the dollar signs or whatever the currency was back then would just be rolling in Lot's eyes. Well, 
there's nothing wrong. And I, I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with God's blessings. He's the one that makes the green grass and the rains to fall. But so often the human heart doesn't seem to be able to contain this. And there's a companion verse to what went on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And parents, listen to this because this isn't just ancient history. These things were written down, St. Paul says, for our instruction. In Ezekiel chapter 16, two verses that are frequently overlooked, verses 49 and 50, it says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Pride is the opposite of poverty and spirit. Surfeit of food and prosperous ease. They had abundance that led to pride. And they did not aid the poor and needy, for they were haughty. To be haughty is the opposite of poverty and spirit, and to be haughty is to be void of the presence of God. And they did abominable things before me. But what led to it? The blessing of God. So it was probably the most prosperous place in that whole part of the world, and they couldn't handle it. Now, I mean, who doesn't like money, right? If you're an American, but realize this, too much of that stuff or too much stuff chokes the life of grace in the hearts of children and adults. Um, I have warned before, and I confess that, uh, you know, I've been a guilty parent and guilty grandparent, which because it's so much fun to buy kids stuff, but American children possess more stuff than any generation in human history. Children ages 4 to 12, according to U.S. News and World Report, and their parents spend approximately $35 billion annually. That is a lot of stuff. And what happens if you overload? Remember, as humans, we have a weak tendency, and, and Jesus isn't trying to be cruel here. He's trying to kind of direct us in the right way. I mean, why do you think God started having weeds after original sin? He wasn't trying to be cruel. He realized that, you know, if you did have a certain humility and how tough it is to grow stuff when you have bugs and weeds bothering everything, it's harder to make increase in wealth. He did that to put a little bit of a lid on human pride because human pride spoils everything. Poverty of spirit open the, opens the doors to the kingdom of God. It's two entirely different destinations. Pope Leo XIII said that virtue is lulled to sleep by a soft, delicate, and pleasure-seeking life. And, you know, in many ways, this is what American prosperity has brought to us, particularly our children and grandchildren. There's a, a book in, entitled The Childhood Roots of Adult Unhappiness. Do you realize the level of unhappiness in our culture? I've been preparing broadcasts, and I usually prepare kind of a long way in advance. I research, but the levels of unhappiness, depression, suicide, suicide attempts, and drug overdoses through painkillers and everything else 
is skyrocketing levels in America. And so this book, The Childhood Roots of Adult Happiness, it says providing too much is the single biggest mistake that parents make. Overindulged children grow up to become adults who are chronically dissatisfied. And then they talked about children with a high amount of material goods have depression at three times the normal levels, higher anxiety, lower self-esteem, worse relationships with parents, and higher rates of substance abuse. You know, I was talking to a police officer in a large metro area of the United States, and I'm not going to mention where it is because, quite honestly, I think the same thing probably is occurring in the large metro areas all around the United States. As in any large metro area, what do you have? Well, you generally have an extremely wealthy part of town. I'm not talking about that nice small farming community in the Midwest where you basically have middle-class folks. In these large metro areas, they have the extremes, the extreme wealthy part of town and the extreme poor part of town. But this police officer told me that in the wealthy part of town, and this was not just wealthy, it was really super wealthy. I mean, there would be presidents of national corporations living there, okay? And in that wealthy part of town, every day there were four to five suicide threats or suicide attempts and lots of intentional overdoses with drugs. And these are people who literally have everything imaginable. But the same police officer told me in the poorest areas, suicides are virtually non-existent. Now, they have their problems, you know, lots of drive-by shootings and drug dealings and everything else. But just that, that extreme emptiness of life where you have four to five suicide threats a day. And this officer told me this is kind of a low estimate by people who have everything imaginable in life. And <laughs> the thing you want in life is God, the presence of God. And yes, Jesus is gone. He ascended back into heaven, but his presence is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. The presence of the future kingdom is for those who are poor and poor in spirit. You know, another thing I'm learning through my depression research, it's a depressing topic, I know, but, you know, social media, they've been tracking the amount of social media and levels of depression. There seems to be very strong correlations and, you know, these things are kind of hard to accurately measure. But, you know, one military, retired military officer said that the current social media is institutionalized narcissism. And narcissism is focused on self, rich in your own spirit, I, 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 me, me, me. And what a surprise if that leads to depression. Because the blessedness that Jesus talks about isn't just what we would term human happiness. It can definitely uh, encompass that, but it's something far more profound and rich and satisfying to the human need. Now, we're going to get to something now I think is rather important. 
There are different Greek words for the poor. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a big Greek lesson, but just just hear me out here. This Greek word that St. Luke recorded for us from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Plain is a particular word for the poor, not just those who may not have a uh, McMansion type of thing, but this is somebody who's so utterly poor that they need to beg. In other words, they're absolutely destitute, and they're totally dependent on someone other than themselves. This is what poor means in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Now, I've told you this tale before, but I think there's a, a real clue to it. And one of the two most remarkable nights of my entire life was the night I was with a group of troubled boys in the mountains of California for a week. I was the cabin counselor of a group of boys, most of whom were seeing either psychologists or psychiatrists. Some were on medications, high behavioral problems. They were messed up and they continued to mess up. They caused trouble and everything else. And you know, the one thing they didn't really have was a whole lot of self-esteem. Uh, you know, these boys were on empty. And it was remarkable to me that in the cabin, the last night that of this camp, I promised these boys that we had a real meltdown, I should say, the first night. I mean, a real meltdown. It was rampant profanity and everything else. And I won't tell you what I did because I'd be arrested if... You heard what I did today. So anyhow, we squared away and said, look, um, I just got out in the service. I said, I would like to have inspections every morning after breakfast. And if the cabin passes inspection, I will, on the last night of this camp, give you all the chocolate you care to eat. And I came back up to the cabin that night, and I was totally exhausted because besides having the responsibility of this cabin full of very troubled boys, I was also responsible for leading the entire camp of 100 kids for about 16, 17, 18 hours a day. I, I don't think I've ever been so tired in my life. I could barely walk up the hill to the cabin. I was emotionally, spiritually, and physically exhausted. And looking back, I was like, what made that night so special? I think that my gas gauge, so to speak, and I'm talking about every form of uh, energy, spiritual or physical or psychological, it was on empty. Okay? I think that was a good thing. And I know these boys were on empty because they, they knew they had been gathered together and they were always causing trouble in church, at home, and school, and everything else. And I went in there, and before I gave them the chocolate, I asked to uh, just give me a couple minutes to tell them about how much God loved them. Very simple. Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Abraham was a picture of a father, God the Father, and Isaac was the beloved son. And I compared Abraham and Isaac to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was all the energy I had. That was all. I mean, I, I truly was on zero, which, again, was a good thing. 
because I didn't have anything else to offer. These boys were on zero before I gave my five-minute talk, and I saw the most miraculous transformation in human beings I've ever seen in my life that night because God's love came down in the most tangible way. It was like the day of Pentecost before my eyes with the most troubled boys and that I could round up in Southern California. And it wasn't because they were wealthy. It wasn't because they were smart. It wasn't because they were well-behaved. They were so empty, and I was so empty. But the fact that they had poverty of spirit, they truly did, God filled them with the presence of the kingdom. It was like they had a foretaste of heaven that night. You know, I said that was a, one of the two most remarkable nights of my life. The other night was the night when I was aboard the USS Coronado in the Navy. And I remember I had been repenting. And, you know, I've been repenting. I started a half full, you know, went to, you know, I had a gallon left. And finally, I came a third time to repent before God because I've been reading New Testament and saying, man, I'm in deep trouble with God. And, and I came to the point where I realized that I was unforgivable, that because of what I had done, I even made fun of God's commandments and all this type of thing, just thinking this is just life's a big joke. Christianity is a big joke. God's a big joke. And I, I had so sinned against him that I thought, you know, um, I am not forgivable. In other words, I was on total empty. And that night changed my life entirely and thoroughly. And yet this is what I want you, parent, to do tonight with your own children. I want you to ask them, if you were to happen to die tonight or tomorrow and you would stand before God in heaven, he says, why should I let you in my, he in my heaven? This is what I've heard from, I would dare say, about 85 to 90 percent of Catholics, including Catholic youth. It's I, 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 I. I do this, I do that. I don't do this, I do do that. And I try to be a good person. I, I, I. I, I, I is not poor in spirit. I, I, I will not bring you the presence of the kingdom in the present. I, I, I will not allow you to lead a faithful Catholic life in the 21st century. It's coming on empty. And not telling the priest when you go to confession, I'm really a good person. No, I'm a rotten scoundrel. I don't deserve this, this goodness and grace which I'm about to receive. And what happens? The poor in spirit, the kingdom of God is theirs. The future blessings of heaven can touch you this day. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 237 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.